talking about the marks of a good church, and that's the title of this series, A Good Church. So with that title, uh, you can uh, never accuse me of sacrificing clarity on the altar of creativity. Worked hard on coming up with the title, A Good Church, but it's apt. If you have uh, spent any time studying this book before, or even in the last week since we jumped into it, if you said, you know, I'm going to read through 1 Thessalonians a few times to get acquainted with it, uh, hopefully you have picked up on that I'm not just calling it a good church for uh, good church sake, but it really does ring of a church that Paul is proud of, he's thankful for right out of the gates, and uh, throughout it he commends them. Uh, even uses phrases like, you're our hope, and you're our joy, and you're our crown, and even you're our glory. And all of that is because he recognizes uh, the grace of God that did an amazing work in this church when he first got there in about 48 AD. And then now he receives a report back from Timothy, one of his disciples, uh, probably a, you know, a year and a half to two years later, and they're still doing great. It's not to say that everything's perfect, as in there's affliction there. He mentions that in this letter. But amidst that affliction, they are still effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are still bearing fruit in their own lives, that fruit that we first talked about last week of a work of faith and a labor of love and steadfast hope. He repeats those later, even particularly in verse 6 when he says, Timothy, whom we sent out to get a report on you, has brought us news of your faith and love. So those same things that he knew about them from the beginning, a few years later, he's saying they're still true of you. This is a good church. It's a model church. It's a living church. It falls short of just one title, and that's a perfect church, because as a preaching mentor of mine used to say to his people, if you're looking for the perfect church, you're going to need to die to get there, because there's only one place you're going to find a perfect church, and that's with perfected saints, and that's in heaven. But right now, we have a look at a church that is alive. It's not dead. You know, you, you give a eulogy to a dead person. Well, this is no eulogy of a dead church or even a dying church. This is an interview with a living church that we're getting for the next few months in 1 Thessalonians. We're asking the question to Paul, hey, what did you do here? What happened in this church that produced what we are reading about right now? That's what we want. That's who we want to be. We want to be a church like this one that uh, a work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope are really the, the core components of our Christianity. We're a, we're a group of grace-filled and gratitude-filled people that recognize that any good that is around us and in us is by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're growing together. All of those marks of a good church that we talked about last week, we started on talking about grace and then we went to gratitude, as Ronald has mentioned. And uh, the big idea we gave you last week for chapter one that will carry over now in the, the rest of chapter one, and really, you could hang it as a banner over this entire letter, and if somebody ever were to say, hey, uh, where can you really find a good church in the New Testament, you know, if you're going to go back in time, right, and you join a church in around 50 A.D., you'd say, I need, you need to put in the coordinates for Thessalonica, and you need to go back there. You'll find a good church. And then you say, well, what's your working definition for it? And the working definition we have for chapter one, but all this letter is this. A good church is a work of God's grace that produces gratitude in God's people for the gospel of Jesus Christ and spiritual growth in him. I mean, that's if you're going to kind of try to wrap your mind around what are we looking at today and next week and probably in the months to come, what are we going to keep coming back to when we say, this is a good church What's the definition of a good church? It's a work of God's grace that produces gratitude in God's people for the gospel of Jesus Christ 
in the spiritual growth of his people. Those are the four G's. It starts with grace. It leads to gratitude because when we recognize it, we see it, we say it, we praise it, and we want to spread it. And what are we actually spreading? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's that going to do in people's lives? It's going to transform them. And when they're transformed, you're going to see growth. So those, those four G's are really what are the marks of a good church. So we're going to read the first chapter again in whole, and then we'll jump into today talking about those second two. We looked at grace and gratitude last week. Until today, we'll get as far as we can looking at the gospel and spiritual growth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God, our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Open our eyes, Father, that we may see the wonderful things in your word about your church. Amen. Well, this morning we'll jump right in, picking up on point number three from last week. Mark number three. A good church proclaims the gospel of God. Verses 4 and 5, we'll see that. That the third mark of a good church, according to Paul, at this church in Thessalonica, is that they proclaim the gospel of God. We left off in verses 2 to 3 with Paul thanking God for the work of his grace in the lives of these Christians, a work of faith that showed up. It wasn't just kind of going off in every direction, uh, this work of faith. It actually centralized itself in how these people labored to love one another which is the high point of all of our work, isn't it? Love for God and love for people. Sacrificing the things we have for the good of someone else. That's the heart of love as a Christian. And it can wear you down, and it should wear you down if you're doing it right. Because love costs something. It's not easy, otherwise everybody would do it. Particularly in the church, particularly when you have an expectation for, uh, hey, we're Christians now, we should do this together, and yet we're still sinners saved by grace. That's why we needed to sing that song this morning, didn't we? Grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that will pardon from all our sins. Whose sins? Our sins. We sing that as a church. And, and how many of them? All of them. That, that thought caught my heart this morning singing it, thinking, my well of grace is so shallow. I could just think back in the last week how graceless I could be when somebody offends me, sins against me, does something that I don't like. And, and the grace, it, it, it empties out really quickly. 
And then I sang that line this morning, looking around, singing it with the saints of this church and going, in His grace, it's God's grace that covers all of our sins. Just shows you how much grace He has. Infinite, matchless grace. And Paul recognizes in these people, look guys, we're not going to get anywhere if we think we're here by anything but the grace of God. And the mark of that grace is that we're actually a changed people. We have faith and love and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So where does he pick up today? Last week he was talking about something that's harder to see, as in the grace of God. He's doing that uh, without us seeing it. We see the fruit of it, but he's working behind the scenes in it. And we express our gratitude for it. But it's an invisible thing God is doing that Paul is recognizing. What's the visible thing he can say that, look, when it comes down to it, like I, you know, I showed up and what did I do? I didn't just walk around and say, oh, there's grace. Come on, grace, show up. No. He did what he says in verse 5 there, the mark of a good church. He proclaimed the gospel. That's the visible thing you can see. And he was sure that he preached it because he felt it in himself. But there's a line that uh, you might have thought I was skipping over for fear of it. Verse 4, knowing brothers beloved by God, his choice of you. How does divine election fit into this? You know, it would scare some people off. Or in the other direction, it would give a preacher a reason to preach a whole sermon on election. But actually, Paul seems to just say, you know, right in the middle of talking about present grace that he's recognizing in their lives as he gets a good report from Timothy in verse 3, and then past effect of the gospel coming to Thessalonica. You know, when he says, how, how do I know all of this is the real thing? How do I know you're the real thing? How do I? Well, because God chose you. He loves you. And he says that inspired by the Holy Spirit to a baby church that has very little theology. I mean, we get all up in arms over divine election. And we have all those systematic theologies we can read on it. And tons of sermons we can listen to on it. And Paul is just almost casually, just saying, you know, brothers, beloved by God, he chose you. Now, how does he know? You know, of course, he's writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so God's whispering in his ear, but he doesn't tell us that. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you because of what the gospel did amongst you. That's how I know. That's how I know you're beloved and chosen by God. Because I see the effect the gospel wasn't just some words that came and it did nothing. He says, I know, and that knowing is really going back to all the way an extension of what he's giving thanks for. So talking about God's work of grace among them, his loving choice of them goes back to him giving thanks in verse 2 because in, in the Greek, that's the main verb. I'm giving thanks. And then all the other verbs you see, uh, making mention of you in prayer, remembering your work of faith and labor of love, and now what I know about you, loved of God, is choice of you, all of those flow from thankfulness. Should that give us perspective on how we feel about the doctrine of election? I'm not saying that we should figure it out right now and be done with it and say, okay, not a big deal. In fact, the doctrine of election probably is one of the hardest to accept, let alone understand. But we have to have a right view of ourselves in light of that. Never to sit in judgment upon God for his choice. If you want to read about that analogy, go to Romans 9 to 11. He'll explain it in full. But what he's doing here is just explaining, look, I know you have been loved by God and he chose you. And notice he links the love of God and God's electing grace. Because what are, what's one of the big um, accusations made against divine election? Well, if God chooses, clearly he doesn't love. You know, he's partial with his love. He just loves some but not others. 
Well, we know the other reason some people might have a problem with it is because they make the accusation that, hey, if God really does choose, then I don't got anything to do. I don't need to evangelize. I don't even need to worry about my personal holiness. You know, but see, again, this is what's so great about when you just go back to the text. Paul can mention brothers beloved by God as choice of you, and then he says, our gospel came to you. And who did it come with? It came with Paul. He knew he needed to preach it. That was his responsibility. He left what God's responsibility was to him, and he doesn't seem to have a problem with it here whatsoever, does he? So that's my one minute I said I was going to give to talking about election this morning because Paul can mention it and move on and get to what he really wants to do, which is to highlight the work of the gospel in Thessalonica that provided and proved evidence that God loved them and chose them. Can you square with that today? I'm not saying you have it all figured out. But if Paul can mention it here, it's akin even to uh, the way Luke casually mentions in uh, Acts 13, some of you that are doing the Bible reading plan that I'm on, and you should have been in Acts 13 yesterday, I believe so, uh, you might have mentioned that, uh, that, that right there that there's, Paul is uh, preaching and preaching the word uh, boldly, and he's in Antioch. And the Gentiles have received it because the Jews are rejecting it. And then in verse 48 in Acts 13, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And then he just keeps going on. Right there. As many as been appointed to eternal life have believed. And Paul keeps going on preaching and he's never stopping saying, oh, I wonder about this whole election thing. Do I really need to even do anything? It never crosses the mind of Paul to try to reconcile those in a way to say, here's why we should still go on preaching. No, he just says, I'm going to go on preaching. And so should you. And yet, who do we know is sovereign over all things in salvation? God is. And how do we know his choice, his loving choice? Verse 5, because the gospel came in power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction in me. Notice Paul is talking about himself here. He's, He's giving his own testimony here. He actually isn't commenting on the gospel's effect in them. He's giving a first-hand personal testimony in verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. And what he's probably referring to there in word only is to say, the explanation for the work of the gospel amongst you isn't in me. It wasn't just my words, the way I was saying it. As in, I have the corner on the market. You know, I studied under Demosthenes. I picked up on some good uh, lessons of, of how to be a good Greek preacher, you know, to, to the Romanized and Hellenized world. And, and that's the explanation for the gospel. So if you would just like to sign up for my class, how to uh, win converts and influence pagans, uh, $5.99 up front. You know, he didn't do that. That's what he's saying. It didn't come in word only. Just like when uh, he was uh, writing to the Corinthians, he, he, he goes into a little more depth, but notice the similarity in language in chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the full conviction. I had to tell you one thing. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved for your sins. But then he goes, if you want to explain it by words, here's how I came. I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. But here's how the gospel came to Corinth and here's how the gospel came to Thessalonica. In demonstration of the spirit and of power. Same idea. 
And it was, it was, you know, Paul leaves Philippi, gets beat up, thrown out, goes to uh, Thessalonica. He gets kicked out. They let him out there, you know, before the mob comes to Jason's house. And then he ends up in Corinth. And, but he's doing the same thing. He's not coming with some, some effective oratory presentation. He's coming in weakness. And his message is not in persuasion, words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and the power. And here's why. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. He's saying, so far as it depends on me, I was not adding anything. I think Paul, in all honesty, would say, the only thing I'm doing is subtracting because I'm weak. But my weakness shows all the more the strength of God and the power of the gospel. That I, Paul, this beat down and kicked out Saul, who was trying to kill Christians, and who now is mocked by my, my old friends. And when they hear of me, they want me gone. You want to talk about preaching with full conviction as a preacher. How about when it costs you something? It gets you beaten in Philippi and run out of town. And before they're going to beat you and run you out of town in Thessalonica, Jason says, you better get out of here now because they're coming. That's what it means to preach with full conviction, that you would say, I believe this so much, I'll put my life on the line for it. That's a real preacher. That's a guy that's not just trying to win you over with fancy words or, or some good stories or making himself look great. That he's saying, look, this is, this is blood earnest preaching. I'm unflinching, I'm courageous, and me and my guys, Silas and Timothy, when we came to you, we preached with conviction and confidence and clarity, but it wasn't in ourselves, it was in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's when the gospel comes to a church, and that's how it changes lives. Paul didn't sell a strategy to save sinners by making it more palatable, because you either believe the gospel with your own heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything you have, and then you preach it that way. Or you don't preach it at all. And you can see right through the preaching that doesn't do it, the preaching that doesn't proclaim Christ, Colossians 1.28. You know, there's preaching that suggests Christ, hints at Christ, connects Christ to the problems of your life, implies Christ, suggests that you may want to try Christ, take a test drive. That's not what Paul did. He proclaimed Christ. He declared Christ. He said it's either Christ and him crucified or nothing. That's conviction. And he knew that when the gospel came, that's what he had. Before he says anything about them, he knew about himself. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Welsh preacher of the 1900s said, a preacher must be a serious man. He may never give the impression that he's preaching something light or superficial or trivial. What makes this so inevitably the case is the subject that a preacher is dealing with, God. And our message as preachers is that every man must be born again and whatever else may happen to him short of that is of no value whatsoever outside of where a sinner stands with God. And that's true then and it's true today. And that's why true preachers will preach with conviction. They're not wasting your time. They're not doing what 2 Timothy 4, 3 says. They're tickling your ears. What's that? Well, it's like my friend from Brooklyn always says to me when he's trying to pay me a, a, a true compliment. Hey, pasta, I'm not washing your face. Or maybe in the South, you might say buttering you up because in the South, butter makes everything better except preaching. Preaching. 
try to butter people up to preach the gospel to them, throw it out. But don't judge with your eyes because you get fooled. Just because there's a pulpit there, just because the Bible's open, just because this guy looks successful, something must have went right with his life. Judge it by what? What you hear. Is the content the gospel of Jesus Christ? And is it calling you to have that same conviction? Give up the same things. Make the same hard choice. Lose your life to gain it. Is it asking you to do that? Or as it says, just add Jesus onto all the other stuff and maybe your life will be a little bit better. You know, you're... you're you're, you're greater than what you're looking in the mirror seeing right now. You got a breakthrough right around the corner coming, but you got to have the faith to have it. So you go out of there saying, yeah, I need that faith to have it. My breakthrough's coming. And you get the news the next day that it's cancer. Is that your breakthrough? Is your faith the fault now because you didn't believe enough yesterday that the bad thing happened to you today? You believe in some kind of evangelical karma? Breakthroughs are coming my way, victory, good things, all, you know, everything's coming up me. Clearly, I must be walking in favor. Paul wouldn't understand what you would be talking about. Because he was saying, you know how I ended up here in this church? Because I just got beat up and kicked out at the last one. Is that walking in favor? He would say, you know, I don't, I don't know any about that language, but I know I'm walking in the Spirit and I'm full of that. And that's what he's attesting to here in verse 5. He's proclaiming him. He's not proposing or suggesting. He's declaring. He's announcing. And what is his announcement? We actually get it back in Acts 17 in those nine verses when he came to this church. I'll just read it for you. It's, it's short. He's proclaiming. Verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, Jesus, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he was saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. That was his proclamation. That was Paul's declaration. God sent his son Jesus out of heaven, down to earth, truly God, truly man, lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father's will, to the law of God, fulfilling the love of God even, loving his Father with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what did he get for it? Rejected and crucified. And that's when the opposition thought they won. Look, he was a fraud. What kind of God can get crucified and die? Three days later, it's the God that can come back from the dead because sin and death were defeated at the cross and he rose again for our justification. And now Paul is proclaiming to every place he goes, this Jesus I preach to you who is the only way that your sins can be forgiven. And just as he preached it then, so we preach it today. Do you believe in the proclamation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners? Do you believe in God's terms that you're one of those sinners and you must turn from your sin and trust in him to be forgiven? The terms haven't changed. They're the same today as they were 2,000 years ago and always will be until Christ comes again. But when he comes again, he's not coming with that message of grace. Verse 10 says he's coming in what? Judgment with the wrath of God, because at that point, it will be too late. See, the ear tickling and the face washing of preachers today avoids verse 10 at all cost. There's wrath coming. That's judgment. That's when it's all over. And there's no chance of repentance anymore. 
And that's why we can say today is the day of salvation. That's the good news of the gospel proclaimed. You can be saved today if you trust in him. But there's bad news with that, is, is if you're a skeptic, if you don't believe it, if you think uh, that, whatever, I'm not buying it, then Jesus says in John 3, 36, the wrath of God abides on you if you reject me. So do you accept or reject the terms God offers? Eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of your sins, his perfect life for your sinful life. What an exchange. Your punishment your eternal destiny for hell taken away because he took the wrath of God for you on the cross. Do you trust him? It's all your faith and hope in him this morning. If it's not, call on him and be saved. That's the good news proclaimed from Paul to this church. And you don't have a church without that good news. A church is a good church by the grace of God that produces gratitude in us. And why can we have that gratitude? Why can we see marks of God's grace? Because the gospel must be proclaimed. There's something else that comes with it in verse 5 that's important to say. And it's not anything that changes the gospel's content, but it does have to do with the person delivering it. Look at the last part of verse 5. He says, this gospel that I preached, that I preached in the power of the Spirit with full conviction, I gave my life for it. There's something that backed up its authenticity, not its content, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. See, Paul says this gospel, it's a message that's proclaimed with our words, but it's also confirmed with our lives. Paul is including himself at the end of this verse. He's not saying that his life is the explanation for the gospel's sufficiency, but rather he's including himself to remove any accusation against the gospel's authenticity. Do you see the difference between the two? The gospel alone is sufficient to save because Jesus Christ alone is the one who went to the cross to die for our sins. So we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus is crucified. But he's saying the authenticity of that message, its credibility is built on what? My life being evidence, who I prove to be among you for your sake. He includes himself in it, not to put the spotlight on his life, to keep the spotlight on Christ. And to say, though, you know what? When, when Christ changes a person, there should be evidence that the gospel doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us, it transforms us. We're not who we used to be. It's not denying anything about our life before Christ. Paul could say, I'm the chief of sinners. But I didn't stay that way. Any man that's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And that's what he's saying here. And I was around you long enough to prove it. Look, in verse uh, 7 of chapter 2, he says, I proved to be gentle among you. You think, I mean, if Paul wouldn't have changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the last thing he would have called himself was gentle. And then in verse 10, what does he say? You are the witnesses as is God, how devout and upright and blameless we behave towards you believers. The proof is in, I was changed. I'm not just preaching to you something I, I, I don't believe, let alone was transformed by. Which then brings up a problem. You know, because our lives are constantly being evaluated. You know, and do the works that we do as believers accent the words that we preach? Because otherwise... Here's the problem, then uh, 
our life and doctrine aren't matching up, are they? I was listening to a, uh, a talk that um, John MacArthur was given to the seminary class starting this semester off, and I guess he must have been in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. But, it, but he said this, and it related to what we're talking about here, a life that proves, authenticates, adds credibility to the things we're saying. He said, it's, an important, it's as important to take heed to yourself as it is to take heed to your doctrine. Because if you don't live in a sanctified way, there's every good reason to assume it'll become known and you'll wind up forfeiting your ministry. But here's the other part that's even more cutting. It's, it's one thing to forfeit your ministry and, and to be, be, no, be found out that you were a hypocrite all along. And listen to what else he says. If you don't live up to that which you're preaching and teaching, if you're saying it but nothing's changing in you, you will also have undermined people's confidence in the word of God because you were the one who taught them, but you didn't have a transformed life. If you can't say amen, you say ouch to that. You've undermined their confidence in the word of God because you were the one who taught them, but you didn't have a transformed life. You're telling them the gospel will transform their life, but it didn't transform yours. You have to be the teacher and the model of what a well-taught, sanctified believer is like. And that's not just for the preachers. I mean, I better wake up to that every day and feel the weight of it. But if you're a Christian who's trying to make a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're a teacher. You're investing something in someone else. You're pouring your, your, what you say you believe into somebody else's life and if they look at you and there's no transformation of you, what are they going to make of it? It's going to undermine the believability, the credibility of it. So ask yourself this morning, is your life, your work of faith, working for or against your words? Mark Devers, pastor up in D.C., had this paradigm where he just talks about how our life and doctrine, they work back and forth constantly. If you're talking about your witness to unbelievers, your, your life attracts, but then the truth transforms, and now as this person has been transformed by the truth, then your life becomes the model, and then the truth explains what you're modeling. So it's a constant back and forth between your life and the truth. The power to transform them is in the truth. But the attraction to it is in you. They're seeing it and they're saying, what, what's different about you? Your life attracts, the truth transforms. Now you're discipling them. Your life is gonna model it. And then when they're saying, how, how exactly, oh, let me show you in the word of God, it explains it. And you're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's what discipleship does. It, it gives something for somebody to see. You know that age-old expression, you might be the only Bible somebody reads? You know, that's what this is about. You know, they, they can have heard it, and because of maybe some people's lives, not believed it, and then they meet you, and you're saying you're a Christian, and they're expecting to see that transformation. But then you say, look, it's like Paul's saying, like, I'm not the one to transform you. You'll be transformed by the power of the gospel, but my life can be proof that it actually can do it. So let's put that all together kind of as a takeaway this morning to wrap things up because we're seeing inevitably, and I'm not going to get to the fourth G today, so we'll just leave off at verse 6 and come back next week because there's a lot to get through there that's good. So let me just try to tie this all together with the time we have remaining. This, this connection between the gospel is a message proclaimed 
And it's also a, a good example to follow. You know, it's, it's confirmed by our lives. How did Paul do it? And if we're going to do it, how did Paul do it? You know, what do we learn from him? And, and maybe initially we say, well, it's Paul. Like, what, what connection do I have to Paul? He was an apostle. I'm a nobody. You know, he, he was the planter of all these churches. He was the writer of 13 of these letters. And, and it might come across as, you know, the best way that we, you know, we imprint that message on people's lives is with the position we have. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Is that the paradigm of leadership he worked out of with this church? Is what made him a great leader here and a good church there that he had some positional authority that really you know, put the thumb on the people that said, man, we better listen to this guy. He's the Apostle Paul. Look back at verse 1. Did he start with, I'm the Apostle Paul? He sometimes uses that authority, not saying you can't. But he doesn't mention Paul the Apostle, Paul the anything. He's just Paul. And he just goes right into the gratitude he has for them. And he goes right into encouraging them. And he goes right into the gospel that came in power. And then he ends with and said, look, my life is the proof this gospel is transformational. But there's a little phrase there in verse 5 that connects all this together. It says, how did Paul do it? What made him a great leader then of a good church that maybe I can do today? And it's right in a small word there that says, what kind of men we prove to be, what's the phrase? Among you. Among you. The application of the power of this sermon today hangs on your understanding of among you. We've talked about some awesome stuff today. You making an impact in somebody's life this week for the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't depend on you explaining to them in depth the doctrine of election, though you might want to try. But can you follow Paul's leadership paradigm that basically boils down to this? And this is, we're going to get some leadership lessons and discipleship from the Apostle Paul in this letter. And here's the first one in this one, and I want you to know it right out of the gates, because it'll ride throughout the rest of the way, and it's this. The power of authoritative force is not as lasting as the impact of relational influence. The power of authoritative force is not as lasting as the impact of relational influence. You can have the position... You can have the authority, you can have the power, and you can use it, but it's not going to last as long as what? Relational influence, personal investment, or to say it like Paul did, prove to be among you. He even breaks that down later on when he said, you know, we could have come. We could have come with, uh, with this... Not heavy-handed, but we, we could have come with this uh, apostolic authority. Look at verse 6. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted it. I might have used it. But what does he say in verse 7? But instead, I did something else. In fact, I went in the opposite direction. I proved to be gentle among you. Do you see that difference in your life, people you're trying to lead? Parents with your kids? Has God given you authority in their life, yes or no? Yes, yes. Is that your only pitch? Is your authority your fastball? Do it because I say. What's your change up? What's going to catch them off guard? And that, whoa. And they might not even see it coming. 
It's who you prove to be among them. It's your presence. It's your life. It's you modeling it. Husbands with your wives called to lead them. What's your pitch? Authority? You got it. You are the head. You're either a good or a bad one by the way you lead. You're not, men, you're not trying to be the head of your home. You are, the Bible says. But the way you lead, if you lead with love, if you lead the way Paul leads here, you're either going to do it well or do it poorly. Which is it? What's your starting point? It's what Paul's saying here. Who you prove to be among that person. Whether it's parent to child, husband to wife, boss to employees, coach to players, teacher to students, any kind of relationship you're trying to build influence with and lead. It's going to be relational, relational impact. Your personal investment in them that's going to have the long-term return far exceeding what you can do in the moment with your position and title. And if you don't get it, now's the time to start it. How do you do that practically? Start with presence. Start with presence, trying to disciple someone, trying to influence them. Are you present? Are you with them? Are you investing time into them? Because that shows you love them. People spell love, T-I-M-E. It's really simple. And you don't give them your time, they're not buying it. Because if they, if, if they were of value to you, you'd spend time with them. Period. You would. You make time for everything else. So if you're always, you know, I got to, sorry. And it's not just then making time. What kind of time is it? Is it quantity or quality? Because you could be present and not present. I could be with my kids and not with my kids, right? What did you say? Huh? I could be with my wife and not with my wife. Adam, can you hold on? What? I'm thinking about the doctrine of election, okay? You know, can you give me some space? So you're present, you're there, you're sitting there, but you're not connected. And Paul was... You know the type of men we prove to be among you. I mean, one of the best things I heard when I came back here a couple years ago, um, I was talking to a, a guy who his, they had joined the church. They had, I was here and left in 2016, came back in 19, and sometime in that gap, um, he and his wife moved and came here and joined the church, and uh, he was sharing a story about how this one guy in, this, in our church um, Graded him, loved him, met him, connected with him, kept following up with him, cared for his needs, all this stuff. And then I don't know if it was months or years went by that he goes, you know, and then I show up and he's on stage at an elders meeting. I never knew he was an elder. And, and it impacted this guy because he had come from a church where that was everything, title. You know, who's got the power? Who's in charge? And he goes, and I, this, he never, never came up, never mentioned it. And that's where I knew I was at a good spot. That the guys with the titles, they don't have to go around telling everybody, reminding them, I'm an elder here. But that's how all of us should be. You got any position of authority in somebody's life? Any title? Is that all you have? If you're not investing in them relationally, if you're not giving them your time, if you're not present with them, then that is all you have. And the moment the title is gone, so is the relationship. But what Paul could do, see, Paul could write back to them and influence them after having been gone for a year and a half. And it's like he never left. Why? Right there in verse 5. 
because the type of person I proved to be among you for your sake. And you know it. And that's why he'll keep saying and we'll keep seeing, you know, you know, you know, as we read through this letter. The gospel's a powerful message. We want to go out of here proclaiming it. We have it. We need to know it. But the gospel is also a personal message. So go and invest in the people you preach it to because you're the example. Now this week we got to see in verse 5, you know, really it was, a, it was a personal testimony of Paul, but then he's going to move and he's going to talk about these people, these Thessalonians, and then we're going to learn something about spiritual growth next week. But maybe if you just needed, as a new year starts, all of us, we need to uh, evaluate and recalibrate our life and ministry. And this is a real, e- I didn't say it's easy, I was going to say it's easy. It's a simple concept, isn't it? Leadership is presence. Leadership is influence. Leadership is relationship. And we can all do that. We can all, as Paul's going to say in this letter, excel still more. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for how it does cut us in a good way. It cuts right down, as Paul, or as the writer of Hebrews says, between bone and marrow, sword gets right down there, divides the deepest part of our hearts. And it's often just exposing something that we can forget is there, which is that we can, we can turn in, we can be about us, and we remember the good news of the gospel and its power that it turns us out transforms us from the inside. And then we take that transformed life and um, we tell other people, we, we witness to other people how you do it through your son. So spirit, guide us and direct us this week, even today, to help us apply it. Help us to be transformed, sanctified, made more like your son, Father. We pray in his name, amen.